Welcome to Laughter and the Law, where we talk about the law with a lighthearted twist. Hey, this is Jackie Hauser with Flexner Hauser Injury Law. Welcome to another installment of Laughter and the Law. Hey, and this is Diane, the trustee office manager, ready to learn more about all of these what are they, rules? Rules of evidence. Rules of evidence. And in this third installment, we are definitely covering things that the jury does not know because of these rules. They will not know these things in the trial. I hate absolutes. So the answer to that is likely. Likely. <laughs> they likely will not know. You as a juror likely will not know these next four things that we are going to talk about likely will not know we're going to start off with a tongue twister okay all right let's do it all right rule 407 of the north carolina rules of evidence i feel like a radio announcer um rule 407 of the rules of evidence talks about subsequent remedial measures subsequent remedial measures yeah say that three times Hmm. Subsequent remedial measures, let me tell you the rule and then I'll tell you what they are, okay? Okay. Subsequent remedial measures are not admissible to prove negligence in connection with an event. So, let me give you the, I can't remember the exact case facts, but it comes from an old railroad case. Okay. A railroad case from 1869. Okay. So, I'm assuming we're talking about a buggy and a horse versus a car. So a buggy and a horse, they were approaching some railroad tracks, and this was near a railroad yard, and as they approached the railroad tracks, over to the right, the railroad had uh, something stacked up. I think it was a hill of dirt. Mm -hmm. So the driver of the buggy could not see the train coming, went across the tracks, and the train hit him. And so there was an accident, and there was a lawsuit against the railroad for that injury. Now, what the railroad did after the accident was the railroad went and moved that mound of dirt and said, whoa, we need to let people see around this, you know, this mound of dirt is keeping people from seeing. Mm-hmm. That was a remedial measure. It was a fix. They learned from their mistake. Exactly. And they moved the mound of dirt. Right. And what the court has said and how this is applied is that you can't use that against them for the injury. You can't use the fact that they wanted to fix something to say, oh, look, they're admitting that they were at fault because they subsequently took some type of remedial measure to fix it. Because they moved the dirt, that proves that they are in the wrong. Right. The phrasing from the court case says this, the courts have applied this principle to exclude evidence of subsequent repairs, right? Subsequent repairs, installation of safety devices, changes in company rules, and discharge of employees or language so that you can't use those things to say, oh, look, you were at fault. And by fixing, you know, those things, you're now showing that you were at fault. Yeah, because, I mean, if that could be an argument made, then I could see how that would prevent people from fixing anything because they'd be like, oh, no. Exactly. If I fix it, then I will be proving that I'm that I'm showing that I was wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I gave you an example off the record before we went on. Uh, you know, what if somebody came in the front door of the office and slid down and fell? 
And I was like, oh, man, I need to put a rug there. Mm -hmm. So instead, you know, the next day I came in, I bought a rug, and I put a rug down at the front door. Mm -hmm. The person who fell can't come back and go, oh, look, you put a rug down. Mm -hmm. So clearly you were wrong by not having a rug down. That's why I fell. Mm -hmm. No, I put a rug down for whatever reason, but it doesn't mean that not having the rug there makes me admit that I was at fault for not having the rug there. Right. See? It happens a lot, like in product liability cases, things like that. It happens a lot there. Whenever folks sue, like the DOT for a bad road design, mm-hmm. and if they come back and fix something like that, you'll see it a lot there too. Interesting. Okay. All right. So w- what's another one? The second one has to do with settlement offers. Settlement offers? What are those? <laughs> So Rule 408 of the North Carolina Rules of Evidence says that offers to settle, what we call offers to compromise is the way that the rule is written, are not admissible to show that someone is admitting fault. Mm. So typically you're not going to have them admitted at all, really, because they're just going to be irrelevant and cumulative and confusing and all that kind of stuff. But we're certainly not going to have it for the purpose of admitting fault with regard to the accident. Yeah, I think also, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, we've talked a lot about insurance policies and limits and things like that. And so if somebody had a policy limit where the most that a defendant's insurance would pay out is 30000 based on their insurance policy, but yet you're going to trial, you don't want the jury knowing that they possibly offered the full 30000 if you feel like you could get more for your client at trial because their injuries are so much more than 30000 Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's a good point, too. So typically offers to compromise or settlement offers aren't admissible for the purpose of showing, oh, wait, hey, they offered to settle, so they must be at fault. Mm-hmm. You know, those kind of things. Okay. Absolutely. You know, it could also influence how much the jury thinks the case is worth if they hear all those different numbers of the settlement. They may think that the defense is cheap. They may think that the plaintiff is greedy. You don't know. Yeah, yeah. It depends on the facts of the case. What's in a settlement offer? Like, what are the things that you consider in a settlement offer? Oh, good question. A settlement offer should cover any damages you've had, those compensatory damages, back to that, So your medical bills, medical expenses, your lost wages, do you have any scarring? Do you have a permanent injury? Are you going to need future medical treatment? And then are you going to have future pain and suffering or have you recovered? Mm -hmm. Those are the things that are typically included in your settlement offer that should be included. Do they consider attorney fees in a settlement offer? No, settlement offers don't necessarily include attorney's fees. Okay. In the consideration, I should say. Right. They're not going to say, oh, well, plaintiff's claims were $10,000 and we're going to add in $3,000 for attorney's fees. No, they're not going to do that. Okay. But typically our goal is to get a settlement offer that maximizes the recovery so that we can validate what we're getting for an attorney's fee because we've gotten you more than you ever would have gotten on your own. Right. And that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Along the same lines, kind of very similar to this, similar but different. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Is Rule 409, which prohibits evidence about promising to pay for someone's medical bills, hospital bills, or other expenses. 
you can't have evidence about that if it's for the sole purpose of proving liability. Okay. All right. You said it's similar but different. So you can't know about settlement offers because people might think that they're admitting fault. But then you're saying that they also can't know whether they've offered to pay medical bills because of the same reason. It may look like they're trying to admit fault. Right. Think about last year, I think it was, whenever you were in a a rear-end collision, right? Luckily, no personal injury, but definitely plenty of property damage. Right. So this guy uh, with a big, giant truck hits your little bitty Honda and... Ruins the trunk. (laughs) Ruins the whole back half of my car. (laughs) Even the backup camera was all spiderwebbed. Yeah, she went from looking like a Honda to looking like a Kia. (laughs) (laughs) Almost a smart car. (laughs) Almost Almost a smart car. So, you know, one of the first things he said whenever he got out of the car was, let me pay for this. Mm -hmm. Let me pay for this. Just get an estimate. Let me pay for it. Mm -hmm. Because he was thinking, you know, it was a thousand bucks, fifteen hundred bucks, whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. But whenever you got the estimate, it was a lot more. Well over eight thousand. Yeah. So, you know, one thing he wanted to do, as I've done, I've done this with you before. uh, You know, I've said, you know, just pay it out of pocket. You know, don't file it on your insurance if it's a small accident, something mm-hmm. like that. No personal injury, anything like that. So if you would have filed a lawsuit, let's say that, you know, things went haywire and you had to file a lawsuit. The fact that he got out of his truck and said, let me pay for it. Let me pay for it. I'll pay you. Just get an estimate. And I'll pay for it. That wouldn't have been admissible to prove that he was liable for an accident. Now, clearly, he hit you in the rear, so he was liable for the accident. Mm-hmm. But to use those kind of statements to prove that he was liable would not have been admissible. Mm-hmm. So does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't just cover medical expenses. It also covers any other expenses. So it could cover property damage. It could cover lost wages. It could cover the, all those things. So the rule says medical, hospital, or other expenses. So any expense that's involved in a loss that you suffer as a result of an accident. So, but they separate these two rules for what reason? <laughs> Oh, well, the answer to that question is, I don't know. I don't know. These rules have been in effect longer than you've been alive. Definitely longer than I've been alive. Not longer than I've been alive. They've been in effect longer than you've been alive, and I just don't know. Okay. More likely than not, one rule existed, and because we love to write laws, and there's more laws on the book than than you could wrap around the earth Mm -hmm. multiple times, all the laws that we have in America, they just wanted to make sure it was clear. Absolutely. I can't explain a lot of the reason for some of the laws we have. I do see where there's a lot of similarities between the two. Mm-hmm. I mean, the settlement offer one just seems all-encompassing because mm-hmm. medical bill offer would be included in that settlement offer, yeah. I would think. Yeah. So Property damage would be, pain and suffering would be, hospital bills. Yeah, uh, and it's and that medical bill rule says medical bills and other expenses, mm-hmm. right? Yep. But then a settlement, it doesn't matter. I don't know why I'm being so picky about this. It just, for me, it seems a little uh, redundant, I guess. And just in the way of the settlement offer rule could absorb. Yeah. Them. But then isn't the medical rule, which one comes first, the settlement offer rule or the medical rule? The, the offers to compromise rule about those settlement offers not being admissible mm-hmm. is the first. It's, it's rule first. 408. 408. And then you have the medical bill that's the 409. Again, why couldn't it just absorb that? 
Anyway, I guess yes. we can't have any holes in our numbers of rules. Those are deeper questions and above my pay grade. All right, all right. To be continued. <laughs> we'll look into that. Yeah. Do you have another? Hey, I do. The last one we'll talk about, and then I got a good example of how all this kind of wraps up together. Okay. Rule 610. about religious beliefs or religious opinions. Rule 610 says, Evidence of the beliefs or opinions of a witness on matters of religion is not admissible for the purpose of showing that by reason of their nature, his credibility is impaired or enhanced. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I'd like an example, please. Can I buy an example? Now, there's a second part of this rule. Oh, okay. All right, let's hear that. We'll we'll take them one at a time. Okay. Second part of this rule says, provided, however, Mm -hmm. I love whenever they do that. (laughs) It's like, here's an exception. (laughs) Provided, however, such evidence may be admitted for the purpose of showing interest or bias. Hmm. We love to point out interest or bias in witnesses at trial. We'd love to point that out. Even though we ask the jury not to practice any... Well, the jury is going to determine credibility, and credibility sometimes has to do with someone's interest or bias in the case. Interesting. Right? Mm -hmm. So you can use it for pointing out interest or bias, Mm -hmm. but for the purpose of showing whether or not these people are... their credibility is impaired or enhanced. Mm -hmm. Susie Sunshine gets on the stage and says... I've been a Christian since I was three years old, and I always tell the truth. Ask your first question. No. Not admissible. No, no, and no. (laughs) But if they say that, you don't have a mistrial. It depends. I don't know. Depends on the motions prior to? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. That was going to be my example. You kind of, you have baited me for my mistrial story. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> um, that kind of wraps it all up. You know, we've talked for three sessions now about these different rules and how do they come into play. Yeah. And, you know, what the jury doesn't know is whenever they show up, a lot of times disgruntled at trial, um, they don't know the amount of time and energy that's gone into trying not to go to trial. We want to settle. We want to be able to have a meeting of the minds. Trials and courthouses are expensive places to go because we have put in time. We've paid witnesses. If you have an expert, you've got to pay them for their time. Usually that's thousands of dollars. That's on both sides. You know, the attorneys have put their time into it. The, the clients have spent months if not more maybe sometimes more than a year or so if it's a med mal trial it might be three or four years Mm -hmm. to get to this place paying for transcripts oh my gosh copies of medical bills depositions all the adversarial motions you've had along the way and now you're at trial and you're having all these pre-trial motions which are specifically about funneling I used that in the last episode, funneling the testimony, funneling the evidence so that we just give the jury what they need to know and we don't waste time, cause prejudice, those kind of things. Distract from the point. Relevant evidence, Mm -hmm. right? So we've done that. We funneled all of this stuff and we filed these motions and they've been heard. We've probably spent a half a day or a day on those and then the jury shows up the next day. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And I don't know what juries think that we've done before we got there, but I'm telling you, there's a boatload of work that's been done. Mm-hmm. And so you want 12 people that are going to pay attention for a day or two. Some some trials go longer. Some trials may be three or four days. Mm-hmm. But you definitely want to pick folks who are going to pay attention and follow the instructions of the court. You also want witnesses that are going to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so whenever you file these motions for all these things that may or may not be admissible or may or may not be relevant, Mm -hmm. and the judge enters a ruling, you have a duty to tell your witnesses, hey, remember, you can't discuss this. You can't talk about this. There's been a ruling about thus and so. Because to violate that is to violate a court order. So the best example I have, and I was thinking about it whenever we were prepping for this session, is a case that I had several years ago. I was actually on the defense in this case. This is before I switched to plaintiff's side. Mm -hmm. I was a defense attorney. For the insurance companies. For the insurance companies, that's right. I've tried cases for both, and I tried a case for a defense insurance carrier. And I I like that. I like that I have that experience. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about it from a sports analogy, and we're a very sports-oriented family, there's not very many sports... I guess golf isn't one of them. Golf, you don't have an offense and a defense per se. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you think about basketball, which is something our family's always been involved in, if you think about softball or baseball, we love that. I was at a softball game last night. Mm -hmm. If you think about soccer, those kind of things, there's always an offense and a defense. And tennis, you're switching from offense to defense constantly. Mm-hmm. What am I doing offensively? What am I doing defensively? What am, you know, constantly. I think that makes you a very well-rounded athlete because mm-hmm. you are both, right? Yes. And you and, know how to adapt quickly. And I know how the other side is thinking mm-hmm. because I have been the other side, mm-hmm. right? So even in trial, I know how the defense thinks because I've been at the defense table. Mm-hmm. So in this particular trial, I was the defense. Mm-hmm. And I think the plaintiff had asked for this civilian investigator to come and testify about the accident. And what happens, a civilian investigator isn't a police officer. They usually investigate minor, very minor traffic accidents. Typically, they investigate traffic accidents where there are no injuries, where there aren't supposed to be injury. So the civil investigator had determined in their report, they had written out who they believed was at fault, which that's great for your report, but you're not going to be able to testify to that at trial. And so I had made a motion in limine, just like we have talked about here, to limit the testimony of the civil investigator so that they could not testify about fault. Fault is what the jury determines, not the civil investigator. The civil investigator is not my jury. Mm -hmm. They are a witness. The judge had ruled. Civil investigator is not going to talk about fault. They are going to talk about their investigation what they found when they got to the scene. Okay, great. So we now have spent a half a day of motions. We've spent a day and a half picking a jury. We're now on day three. We're about to start evidence. And the other side is going to call that civil investigator. Was, Was the civil investigator their very first witness? Yes. Oh. First witness, civil investigator. Okay. All right. So before the civil investigator gets on the stand, I've never talked to this person before, but I step outside with them. I remind them about the motions. You know, you can't talk about fault. You can't talk about this. What are you going to talk about? What are you going to say? Blah, blah, blah. I I stress what the motions are because they're not my witness. They're the other side's witness. Typically, they're a neutral. They're supposed to be a neutral witness. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't calling them, so I consider them the other side's witness. 
So the civil investigator gets on the stand and the other attorney says something like, you know, state your name. How are you employed? How are you employed on such and such date, the date of the accident? I was a civil investigator for the city of, you know, Lumberton. And do you recall investigating this accident on such and such a date? Yes, I do. And what do you recall? And we're like four questions in. And the civil investigator says, I recall arriving at the scene and seeing the at-fault vehicle was pulled off the road to the right. And I'm like, the at-fault vehicle? Mm. So I immediately jump out of my chair (laughs) and say... So dramatic. (laughs) Say, Your Honor, motion to strike and motion for mistrial. Mm. And the judge says, Mr. Bailiff, take the jury out, please. And all the judge and I and the other attorney is thinking about is how much time we have wasted. We have wasted the court's time. We haven't. We haven't wasted the court's time. But the court's time has been wasted because this person on the stand, who, by the way, isn't just Joe Blow. They're a civil investigator. They probably have testified before. I hope. I don't know that. But they now have made a huge mistake, even though they were instructed otherwise. Mm. And so the judge lets the jury go out. I make my motion and I tell the judge, Your Honor, I met with the civil investigator five minutes ago out in the hallway. I stressed your order that they would not discuss fault. And the judge confirmed it. They said something like, yes, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong, blah, blah, blah. Slip of the tongue, probably, something like that. And the judge declared a mistrial. And so what happens at a mistrial? Mistrial means the trial's over. Okay. You're going to start over. You get to start over now. And you just don't get to start over the next day. Mm. You now have to go through the whole process of getting back on a trial calendar, which usually is at least six months. Mm. So you now have got to get back on a trial calendar and go through this entire process again of pre-trial motions, picking a jury, blob, setting up your witnesses, making sure everybody can appear at that session of court, X, Y, and Z. Mm. Um, all because this person couldn't follow directions and couldn't follow the court's order. So I say all that, kind of wrapping all this up to say that the court takes these orders very seriously. What is and isn't relevant and what is and is not admitted into evidence. Mm-hmm. And the civil investigator wasn't sanctioned. They could have been. but What does that mean? Sanctioned, they could have been punished. Ooh. They could have been held in contempt. They could. I mean, there's a lot of things that could have happened, but we won't go there for sake of time. But it did, obviously, I mean, we were literally three minutes into the first witness whenever the case was declared a mistrial. And so those are just, the courts takes these things very seriously. Whenever a judge issues an order, it's expected that you're going to adhere to the order. And your witnesses are going to do the same thing. So That's got to be just, that's just got to be terribly discouraging when that happens. Right. And the long story, the end, you asked me off the record what happened at the end. And, and the long story is, I mean, before we got to the next trial date, the case did settle. And, you know. Everything was sunshine and roses. But, you know, still, 
all of that money was spent and all of that money and time and energy and effort was spent yeah. um, for both sides, uh, regardless of whether you're plaintiff or defense. It's a lot of energy getting ready for a trial. And so that's just how, you know, that's just a good story to stress the importance of these rules. Yeah. You know, I know that now you represent the plaintiff side and um, you've definitely shared before your reasons for choosing to represent people instead of companies and all that jazz. But I know you've probably got some really fun war stories over there on the other side, and I would love to hear them sometime. I think uh, others would like to hear some fun stories, too. Sure, absolutely. We'll do that sometime. Yeah, if you'd like to hear them, please do let us know. We have some really fun things in the pipeline that we are excited about sharing in future podcasts, but we also want to hear from y'all. So if there's something specific that you'd like us to cover or something you're interested in, or if you have questions about anything we discussed today or in previous podcasts, please do shoot us a message on our social media, and we'd love to hear from you. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to Laughter in the Law, where we talk about the law with a lighthearted twist.